0: Welcome to the podcast. It's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The ask a cycling coach podcast presented by trainer road. I'm coach Jonathan Lee with our head coach, Chad Timmerman Hi, everybody. and our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. We're going to answer more of those cycling and triathlon related questions today. You can submit them at trainerroadcom slash podcast. But before we get into that, let's just pick up where we left off last week, which was cross Nats. It's all done here in Reno. Uh, it was a, it was a blast. It was an awesome, awesome event to have going on. Um, Nate, you did not race as much as you planned to. <laughs> <laughs> not quite as much. <laughs> Why?
1: <laughs> uh, so I did a training camp over the weekend before Cross Nats, uh-huh. and I thought I was going to come in like take a couple days rest, get a good rebound in fitness. Um, I had also pulled my back, so there were many reasons. But I started pre writing the course, and I felt really bad. I thought, oh, I'm just tired from this uh, from this trip, and my back was still pulled, so getting on and off the bike was hard. So I skipped that day, but I pre-wrote the course and I was like, I'll come back the next day. But then I actually, I actually got sick. Um, so I was just sick the whole week Ugh. and I really wanted to race cause I, you'd watch all these people race. And then on the last, uh, on like on Sunday, I tried to do Carson, which isn't so hard, just a sweet spot workout. Yeah. And that it was hard to do the anything. Order. So I did the right choice. I I made the right decision by not racing while I'm sick because it just would have been yeah. horrible and it probably would have been more sick. Mm. I did some backsters in between there, like light aerobic riding. I On Sunday or Saturday when I did my harder workout, that was actually too soon also. I could have done more aerobic, mm. but just like we talked about before, people gave me poo-poo in, on my <laughs> Strava feed. Um, it's like, when do I know when yeah. to come back with more intensity and I picked one that's less intense, I probably could have bailed on the workout rather than just turning it down and finishing it. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I feel like I'm better today. I'm going to try a hard workout today.
0: Cool. Cool. Yeah. That's, that's a hard thing to do is to swallow that. Even though you want to race, not letting yourself race. It's and it's, harder. yeah.
1: And there was like so many races and it was yeah, actually a course ain't coming back next year either. So you no. missed it. Well, you <laughs> cross, but I, it, it was a course too, that suited like, uh, there's one technical sp- spot, but other than that, it was pretty much a power course.
0: It what really was, yeah. It was a fun course too, and that was what I heard overall from a lot of the riders that were there, pro all the way to an amateur. They loved it. Um, tons of fun. fun. Yeah, it was a blast. The sand was rideable um, every lap, uh, but if you, I think that it was sand that if you didn't have. A lot of bicycler confidence, then you would end up running it. I saw some things that I kind of wanted to share, like some some tips, I guess, from watching all week. Uh, first of all, in the sand, something that I saw the top guys do is they entered the sand in a lighter gear than you would think, meaning that it, in a faster spinning gear than than you would think. And they also, but some of the guys too, they would enter, then they would shift down in the sand. And learning to shift down in the sand is actually kind of tricky Mm -hmm. because when you shift down, you theoretically should be like dropping down your, your, the power you're putting through the pedals for just a millisecond there to let that shift happen without, you know, possibly popping a chain and and dropping a chain, something like that. But these guys, I saw a lot of them shift down once in the sand Mm -hmm. to the top guys. So it's interesting to see. And I think that that's the, that's the best thing. We talked a lot about tips on how to go through sand in the previous podcast episode, which you can check out that's episode one thirty six, And it was, uh, as a, a cyclocross with the pros night that we had here at the, at the podcast or at the Trainer road HQ. So you can listen to that, but, uh, something I wanted to, to see, or wanted to point out hopping Belgian steps. I saw so many, or heard so many people saying there was a speed limit to them. There is no speed limit no, to them. It's entirely rhythmic. Exactly right. Because yeah. we saw people going up extremely slow. Yeah, There's some, people, some
2: people carried no speed into it at all. There's Dude, four, 40 miles per hour.
0: Practicality. Yeah. Let's be real, okay? Nobody's going into that Realistic. at 40 miles an hour.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but the difference between coming into it at 5 miles an hour up to you know, 15 or even 20... Everybody, they were saying, making it work.
0: Yeah. Everybody said there's saying there's a speed limit. They were not even remotely close to 40. So that's ridiculous. So oh, we, we don't need to go that right. far it, in all realist, you know, in terms of how fast you hit it. There were some guys, especially in the collegiate race, some serious bike skill we saw yeah, that that's day, impressive. um, because those riders are, they're busy chasing Instagram followers with sweet skills rather than, you know, perhaps race wins. Those guys they were coming coming in so fast into those stairs while others are going extremely slow. It was just all about mm-hmm. you have to time. You, you have to match the timing that you're
2: hopping with – the actual speed it
0: was—it was pretty interesting to see.
2: And it was at the exit of a turn too, so he couldn't come into it that fast. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think he could push twenty through that turn. Oh heck no!
1: There, uh, I mean, they were like eight miles per hour. Yeah, it look like? yeah,
0: yeah. It was, and that would be pretty quick, really. Uh, in the mornings, it was always frozen and slick, which was which was really tough. Uh, and speaking of that, one takeaway that I wanted to say is that when it's frozen and slick, make sure you air down because if you don't air down, you'll be like me and you'll crash four times in one race um, before mm-hmm. you air down your tires. Yeah, so
1: let's, let's talk about the other races,
2: Yeah. Chad. You didn't, nothing? Nothing. No, I had no intention of doing anything, so I stayed the course. Okay, cool.
0: (laughs) Jonathan? Yeah, I did a relay race. I did a locals race, and I did an industry race. Mm -hmm. The locals race was only two laps. The relay race was only one lap. that was really fun I I like just one lap it reminds me of motocross days
1: we had a a two man two uh, woman relay race for trainer road and uh, Jonathan did to his credit he got the second fastest lap of the day by two seconds by two seconds and he started in the middle and I saw you in the technical section you were stuck behind people I was I saw you coming in there was like three people before you the technical and I was like of all the places (laughs) I know right, right So I to uncork it, but who knows the fastest person may have been stuck behind five. Oh, Oh, I'm sure they were. So, I mean, well, no, if you, if you would have been in the first lap, it would have been a lot. Yeah. You would have been clear. So free bird over there, free bird. But anyways, (laughs) who knows It's hard with relay to compare.
0: Yeah. One thing I saw a lot of people doing too, is not considering the approach and the exit of an obstacle. Uh, when they were coming into riding it. So, uh, for example, especially when looking at the, they had a little Creek crossing in this case, that Mm -hmm. it was an abnormal obstacle because it was just natural, not man-made and a lot of people were coming into that and they were thinking it's okay to just roll through this slowly. A but so I, I guess I should say a lot of people were dismounting and hopping across that was really slow. And then some people were like, I can just roll through it. And then I don't have to get off my bike. And then there were people that were jumping over it and a lot of people decided jumping over it feels sketchy. So I'm not going to do that and just going to roll through. But after that, it was probably the steepest or one of the steep, other than the technical section, it was one of the steepest surges. So that was a great example of let what follows after the ob- obstacle depict what you do yeah, if like you're going
2: to pass the it. obstacle. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because I was able to gain some seconds, like three seconds, every lap on people that were riding through that just by carrying more speed and jumping. And the reason I was carrying more speed was because after that it was a steep little kicker. So that was interesting on that same thing. I saw Jeremy powers doing something in motocross, they call it a seat bounce, but he was actually staying seated and he was weighting his saddle and leaning back, but like sitting down still. And then picking up from there. So he wasn't bunny hopping, standing up. He was like bunny hopping, sitting down. So basically what he does is he takes his weight and he presses it down into the saddle and back. And if you can see my hand, I'm like riding a bicycle. He puts his weight down into the saddle and back and leverages up. And then he just kind of hops forward. Um, they do that in motocross to be able to put more weight transfer into things, to be able to. Get even more trajectory, more air over something, and I saw him doing that, and I think it was actually pretty clever because it was letting him with less body English get over that gap cleaner than a lot of people were. Mm-hmm. So the, this, this gap, re- I've
1: never seen that before. This gap too was a perfect place to break a wheel, like a rear <sighs> wheel, and plenty of lot. people. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, we'd look at it, and I'd oh, it's like they kind <laughs> of make just it lift halfway it a wheel, and then yes. slam that rear wheel. Yeah, into it's pretty much they jump it and then just like. There was a, there's a bank that you'd have to kind of go up on the other side and mm-hmm. only the rear wheel would hit the bank. And sometimes a rock, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, it's like, like you're trying there to There goes all it. their speed. Even
2: if they didn't break a wheel, they lost all momentum. Yep.
0: Yep. Yeah. So that was really cool to watch. Uh, they had a really steep run up and in the morning of the, of the junior races, the, the like 16 and 17 year old race, Ben Gomez, he's the Pan Am champion. He won. That was one of the best races of the weekend. Cause it was like three lead changes a lap. But there was a guy that was behind him who was who came into the last lap and he made a mistake just before the mechanics area, but he had in his mind to pit and switch bikes because he had one bike with knobbier tires and lower gearing that was ready to go so that he could ride the run up, whereas Ben was going to run it. He did actually catch up and catch time on him when he rode that run up, but thereafter he was completely blown and he didn't have enough to be able to close any gaps. And in fact, he actually lost time after that. So this was an example of like, and he still didn't have that low of gearing. I think he had maybe a 36 in that case, but I think that if you're going to do a run up, that's that steep, you really have to, once again, consider what comes thereafter.
1: Sure. Um, so you know. there's also, uh, all week long, we got to watch people do the the S section, and the the, the conditions changed throughout the uh, mm-hmm. throughout the week. And for those who haven't heard, it was it's a very steep, kind of off camber, tricky section where you have to come in. Um, it's like a two pretty much really tight turns, very close to each other, on a very steep, like hard to walk downhill.
0: Yeah, it's about uh, I think the pitch was somewhere in between thirty five and forty percent. That's really
1: really steep. <laughs> it was so, steep. Um, and. In the early the week, it was much different conditions. But at the end of the week, the last couple of days, it was kind of the same each day. Mm-hmm. It was really hard with loose on on top. Mm-hmm. And watching the um, the pro men and women, they would take such a more wide entry mm-hmm. into that final turn. So they'd go tight on the first turn, and then they well, they would s- enter
0: wide. And then exit tight yeah, to yep. then set them up for the next one.
1: Yeah, and then be much, much more wide than all the age groupers. Mm-hmm. They were like I, – I saw some people on the – they'd be so tight on the final turn that they'd be like trying to grab the tree. Yeah. And then I see the, the pros, and I, I really got to see the pro man do it every lap is they would come so tight, and then Cody Kaiser, who's on the podcast, yeah, he actually went so wide, and then just picked up his rear wheel <laughs> and ride had the front right, over, yeah. and he just did a little hop with his rear wheel and moved it over and got a straight like shot down. Yes. So he pretty much turned himself so he's perfectly like in line, and it took him a I don't know a quarter second. It was it looked completely smooth. <laughs>
0: yeah, and like awesome, I, right? I would fall down, yeah. and I
1: saw another pro man. I think you guys saw a collegiate do this too. Yeah, he picked up his rear wheel and just. Rode his nose like a unicycle. Yeah, down the turn. Yeah, and then went and pretty amazing. That I can't do. I mean, I can't do anything. <laughs> I can't walk down that hill. Yeah, so much less ride. But yeah, it it, it truly like the pros. You can learn something from the pros, right? Yeah. Better lines.
0: It's the same principle of thinking what comes after, whatever you're doing, rather than just like, I want to survive through this turn. Because if you do that, then you'll end up in a spot where you won't survive through the next turn. If yeah, it's just a
1: thinking pain. a couple moves ahead. Yeah. And to Jonathan's credit, there's another off-camera section before that. And the first, the first couple days, everyone was riding this really high and tight line, mm-hmm. and Jonathan's going... Everyone, he told me, he's like, they're all right in the wrong line. They're all right. I pointed that out when we got to the top and we looked at the entry.
2: That outside line, that far outside line, looked better to me so that you could sweep across. It's just, yeah, but it's the same thing that that we always see. You see the rut, and that's the path of least resistance. It at least
1: appears to be.
0: We're good at that, aren't we? Like, we naturally just see that and we think, okay, that's the path to go,
1: but you have to broaden your horizon. And the pro men and women took a different the line okay. that you both of you guys said. Yeah. Sorry, Chad. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't with you when you saw that, but, but it's just, it just, you you said the takeaway is yeah. just because the line is there
2: doesn't yeah. mean it's the right yeah, one. Yeah. And that's a, that's a hard, pardon the pun, rut to not fall into. I mean, yeah. that's, that's what we gravitate toward. Uh, the last thing that I wanted to share too was in these
0: icy conditions that I had in the morning, it, everything, so the, Rain had fallen. And then after the rain had fallen, everything was pretty well saturated. Like the ground, there wasn't dry ground anywhere. It wasn't necessarily muddy everywhere, but it was just fully saturated. And then when it got cold in the evening, that moisture started to come up and then it dropped down to below 20 degrees. And it was, it was just, everything was frozen solid. Couldn't even break through the surface. And in those situations, it's so much better to look outside the main line. Once again, we're talking about getting outside the main line, but at least you'd have blades of grass that you could crunch down. Because otherwise, when you're riding on this goat path that had been developed for a week of racing on the course, it was literally so slippery that in an off camber section, I stood in my cycling shoes and I was just gliding downward. Like it wasn't it was and it was mud looking underneath me, but it was that frozen solid. So uh find alternate lines, get into the to the grass, other situations like that when things get loose, or
1: I should say slip slick. So
0: it was a ton of fun though. I'm so glad that happened. That was amazing.
1: uh Courtney and Cody both did very well.
0: Yeah, Courtney
1: got Fourth, Cody got. Oh, man, I want to say
0: you got uh, tenth, Cody. I want eleventh, eleventh, yeah. There we are. And uh, Courtney qualified for the U.S. Um, she's going to be going and representing the U.S. at World Champs, which is awesome. And so those
1: those are the two uh, people who we interviewed in the last podcast. You can also look at that at Trainer Road or no, YouTube dot slash Trainer Road. Yes, we have a live. We had a live party here at Trainer Road. We did some. Chad and I participated in team mm. building after that. That knocked me <laughs> a lot out for like of team building. I've, ne- I've been, I was hungover over for like three days. I've never I'm okay yep. now, but two solid Our days producer in here is. too was there. And uh he's 20-something, so yeah. it was nothing for him. But hanging with a 20 something For us older people, it was brutal <laughs> it was r- rough.
0: So Nate, you and I last night, changing gears. Okay. You and I last night we
1: got home. Nice pun. And
0: that was good, right? <laughs> Bike puns. Uh we flew in from from Vallermo, California. Yep. And we went up to, so for people that don't know, I guess we should set the scene first. Uh, all three of us were going to be racing each other at state champs and state time trial championships. No, uh,
1: districts. Districts. Yes.
0: Yeah. Well,
2: it's basically it's state. It's yeah, It's Northern yeah. California, Northern Nevada. Yep. Yeah.
0: yep. California split into two and then our regions were shared. So, uh, so it's state champs. If you win, you're the state champion. Oh, so, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can call yourself that. So, uh, so anyways, we're going to be racing each other. And it's going to be a time trial. Uh, Chad, you have quite a lot
2: of experience in time trials. Mm-hmm. Fair that's, much.
1: Your, that's your bag. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. You're the best of all those things that you do. You're the best at TTs.
2: Yeah, if I had to pick uh, discipline within, it'd be time trialing.
0: Yeah. We've covered this before, but you narrowly missed out on...
2: National, national podium, but national still podium. just fifth, just barely squeaked <laughs> off of the podium by a fraction of a second. Now how much, uh, was time was it exactly? Uh, points, point 0.3 tenths of a second or three tenths of a second. It wasn't three much. tenths of it was a less second. Less than a second. For fifth place in national.
0: You're bringing up like a traumatizing event. You're getting I shouldn't say this because this is what <laughs> motivates people. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so legit time trialist, Nate, you've, you started in triathlon in terms of riding a bicycle, yeah. right? So you have a lot of experience on a TT bike, but do you have a lot of Experience with like time trials too?
1: No, uh, just local ones. Yeah, Um, but I mean, a triathlon is a time trial, Mm -hmm. but you're not. It's not as hard, right? Mm -hmm. You don't go Mm -hmm. as deep. You're like at eighty-five. Well, depending on the race, all out. Exactly. Ever. And then um, I've also had, we'll talk about two, but I've also had lots of problems with time trialing. so.
0: Yeah, so we went to Vallermo to go visit Dan Emfield, the man behind Slow Twitch, Quintana Roo, really kind of revolutionized. Trial helmets? Yeah. Uh, no, not time, time trial. Time
1: No. Nope. Helmets? Wetsuits? So he had the, Quintana Roo was the first bike that had like a really steep seat post. It was like made for triathlon. Right. Yeah. And then he also, the uh, first one or part of the fr- I think the first one to do uh, triathlon specific wetsuits too oh the that allows so him to good. swim a stack and reach yeah. on bikes he coined that term so you see those look terms, on a, yeah. yep mm-hmm. you look on a website and you see stack and reach that's because of Dan Enfield yeah. to try to get the fitting because it was all he was before it was like, how long is your top tube mm-hmm. it's yeah. not It's not the right it thing just be boiled down to those two things, yep. yeah yeah, yeah,
0: and, and many yeah, and we went to go see him to go get bike fits yep. uh, so you already had a TT bike.
1: Yes, I, I have a TT bike, and he has a whole... Or a um,
0: tri-bike, we should probably call it.
1: Yeah, it is a tri-bike, I, I interchangeably. Yeah. Um, this one is specific. It's not UCI legal. I have the specialized shiv, mm-hmm. the one that has the bladder inside. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for our TT competition, I can't use that one. Um, but anyways, Dan Enfield has a, a protocol called FIST. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget what it stands for, but it's, it's a fitting fit system.
0: Institute of Slow Twitch, I think. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Uh-huh.
1: Yep, so he has this compound. It's a... T- Dan's crazy dude. He's got 10 <laughs> acres in the middle of California. It's um, gorgeous up there. Yeah. Like really gorgeous. Yeah. Rattlesnakes probably everywhere because it's like high <laughs> desert. Yeah. And then he has uh, just a bunch of buildings, swimming pool on his place and just bike stuff everywhere. everywhere. Legit Every, bike stuff. Legit <laughs> bike stuff everywhere. I think he had like over 50 saddles.
0: Yeah. It's crazy. And then a bunch of stems, bunch of bars. He had he had like awesome TT bikes, gravel bikes everywhere. It was Yeah, a we just we, cool we looked at
1: like one section. They're like, "Wow, there's like $60,000 of bikes there." <laughs> and but like all legit bikes in different yeah. disciplines. He's so he started um I think he did it uh Kona in 81. So the
0: first year they did it, right? I think at I think so.
1: actual in Kona. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's been with the sport since then. Anyways, the dude knows his stuff. Knows his stuff. He teaches he's people partner. with yeah, a p- pioneer, that's a way to say it. And he teaches people how to fit. Um he had four different fit bikes there. Should we so we traveled there. We're actually going to have a video on it. And by we, Jonathan and us too. Yeah. And you didn't
2: go because you already have I'm us. happy with my bike. I'm happy with my fit. We'll see how that Plays out mm-hmm.
0: right, and which bike do you have? Let's just cover that before we go. A uh,
2: Giant Trinity, Trinity. I don't remember what model it is, but it's the bad boy. It's a super bike. Yeah, everything's. It's really pretty. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: everything's very clean. And
0: I guess pretty really doesn't matter. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, but it, it, it looks l- cool. It looks quite
2: arrow. It does. Yeah.
1: There'll be some takeaways from this rather than just a story. Yes, a promise. We promise. So what we we, we did is we were on uh, a fit bike, and a, if you've never been on a fit bike, it is so I, I like we will never get another bike fit. If the person doesn't have a fit bike, <laughs> yeah. it, it it it's amazing. So you, you get on this bike and it doesn't look like a bike. It's more like two stands, one stand for your handlebars and one stand for your, uh, your saddle. saddle. And, and then, then, then your
0: bottom bracket doesn't move your cranks. That's an important thing to say. Like. The cranks themselves are a fixed point because think about it on your bicycle. You can't be like, I'm going to move my bottom bracket forward four millimeters. You can't do that. It's fixed in the frame. So just like on the fit bike, that point is fixed. Everything else moves around that.
1: And that's the whole point of stack and reach is it's mm-hmm. from. It's the center of that universe. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what Dan was actually measuring for us was um, the stack and reach to where the 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 handlebar pads were. Mm-hmm. Because that's the important thing in a TT bike, not where like where mm-hmm. you're. Uh, um, zero tube is yeah. mm-hmm. right. And then he has some, he has some tools on slow twitch.com and you can find them to be able to say, okay, if my handlebars or if my, not my handlebars, my pads are here in space, what kind of stem and angle could I use? And then it, you can then look up what kind of bikes will fit you. Mm-hmm. It's like this, this backwards method. So, and so,
0: yeah, cause I'm going to, I'm going to step back on that really quick because I think this can, hopefully this explains it well. So stack and reach. Basically your stack, we're talking about the elevation from your bottom bracket to the top of your head tube. Okay. So that's not, you don't hold the top of your head tube on a bicycle. You have a stem and you have handlebars. And then your reach is the measure from your bottom bracket forward to the center point of your head tube. And once again, you don't necessarily hold the center point of your head tube. So stack and reach is really helpful in terms of getting a chassis correct. But especially when we're talking a TT bike, you have to have like a separate stack and reach. Mm that's measuring to where your pads should be and where your hands should be, that sort of thing. Yep. So, so, so stack and reach is really helpful, but then you also have to look at the same measurement on top of that to make sure you know where your
2: arms need to be. And so, starting point is your basis. Yeah. yeah, exactly.
1: And for stack and reach too, like in one brand, um, it could be a 56 could have the same stack as reach as a 54 in another brand. Right. Mm -hmm. So people go, I always ride a 54. 54. Right. (laughs) And you're going to have to put a, a, like a a really, uh, if you buy that, the bigger bike, you're going to have to put a really short stem on and that could feel weird. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Or vice versa. You could just have a really weird setup up front. Like I look at TT bikes, for example, you put so much weight on your bars because that's where you're, you know, resting your arms and everything else. You put so much weight up there. If you have a really long stem on there, You've got a lot of weight with a lot of leverage over the front, and it could make for things to be a little twitchy. So, mm-hmm. making sure that you figure these things out beforehand is key. Mm-hmm. So then that way you're not dealing with extremes that cause problems.
1: And in, in the TT world, in the tri world, at least in the tri world, we don't care about that. <laughs> we care about like whatever bike fits us yes. and whatever is aero, yeah, because we're it's it's really like once you if you're going straight in a line, mm-hmm. all the the new bikes they kind of they just they go in a straight line really well. Mm-hmm. So even until if you little, don't. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, usually too, is. it's like, you know, remember yeah. Kona, how oh, yeah. it's not yeah. twisty turny, but all I'm saying is so, yeah.
0: that it's in the thing is, in a lot of cases, chances are you'll have a more aerodynamic bike. You'll have a better fitting bike. In most cases, if you're not having to rely on really lengthy components that yeah. are really are really odd size components attached to that frame, Yeah. you know, that's usually a sign that and not in every case, but in some cases that's going to be a sign that you probably could have a better fitting frame.
1: So b- back to the bike. So there's the Fit bike, and the first thing he does is he asks what size cranks you you run, mm-hmm. and we we could have changed crank length if we wanted to, but we just rode what we rode, and the, the bike is so cool. He just changes a screw. Now you got your crank length. Mm-hmm. You're ready to go, and then um, so you get on the bike, and he kind of situates it how you want it. And the cool thing about a Fit bike is on this one, he just turned these like little wheels, mm-hmm. and he could move your saddle um, for back and forward, up and down five, you know, one millimeter at a time. And he
0: had measurements on there. So then he he could tell when he was moving. Yeah, he wasn't just like, uh, and they were all labeled, which is really handy for him too. When he was moving these things, it wasn't just random movements. He was moving it, you know, five millimeter increments or something like that.
1: So you get on it and there's a CompuTrainer hooked up to this thing and you start pedaling. And uh, he could literally raise my saddle five millimeters, move me forward, bring my bars down and bring my bars closer in about five seconds, <laughs> and you could think, how long would that take you to do an Allen wrench? You're, yeah, you're so pedaling the wh-
0: and you're pedaling the whole time too. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: So it's and and he actually to make it even quicker, he had like little drills in there, little like uh, yeah. motorized drills. So then it just be boom, boom, <laughs> boom. and knew you'd be in the spot you need, and that was so helpful to be able to ride in that position, kind of reach a stasis, mm-hmm. and then have him adjust it. Wait for a while, and you could feel
1: the difference. Real time feedback. Here, here's the key thing too: is the comp trainer was set up in erg mode. So we first, uh, you know, in the hundreds, we warmed up, but then he would raise the watch, something that was fairly difficult, like mm-hmm. a, a hard tempo or a sweet spot. Mm-hmm. And I would say, "Oh, my quads are burning! Right, my quads are burning right now." And he would do some things. He's like, "Is that better?" And I didn't. I would keep pedaling the whole time, and then he would say, A, B test." I was like, "I'm not sure." And he and he would go A or B, hmm. A or B, mm-hmm. and just do both those things. That would take, like, it's just impossible to do on a regular oh, yeah, bike. Oh yeah, it'd be and so tricky. We got to this point where, and what his method is kind of, people get more, a lot more forward on the bike, and he kind of rotates you. So if you're row position, you might have a good setback, and you would think that if you just folded over your arms to be on the bars, mm-hmm. you'd be really collapsed, right? Mm-hmm. And that wouldn't be a very good position. Mm-hmm he kind of raises the saddle, brings it forward and then rotates you down. Uh And he kept doing that to me and I felt so far forward. But then this point happened where I was suddenly like, I I think it's going to be on the video. I was like, Oh, this is it. (laughs) Yep. I felt like my quads were engaged. My hamstrings were engaged. And, uh,
0: you looked me in the eye and gave me some sort of challenging statement.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you were in the zone. Yeah. To, to give, it, yeah. <laughs> to give an example, before on my shiv with my position, 270 watts was hard, right? I and mean, I have a new FTP, I haven't mentioned this yet, of 345. It's, bam. It's really big, right? Yeah. So <laughs> for my standard, yeah, Well, I'm, but, yeah. uh, for people, New people to the bike or to the podcast too. I'm a bigger guy. I'm tall and I'm 185 pounds, so yep. it's all relative. Yep. If you're 140 pounds, yeah, 345 would put you like exactly pro, right? Yep. So, anyways, um, he had the the computer trainer set to 350 watts, and when I got into this position, 350, I was like, this feels felt like you could do it, I, exactly, like I could hold it, yeah. and it went from it was really it was crazy. It went from like super quad burn. To maybe two adjustments, and I'm like, "Oh, this is it." And he raised me up and down a little bit, and uh, what were I, the adjustments that took away that quad burn? It was actually my saddle ha- height is a lot higher mm-hmm. and a lot more forward, mm-hmm. like a lot more forward, and then my handlebars went up a ton too.
0: As that mm-hmm. saddle moves forward, I think a lot of people will just think that because. So when we were at Kona and we were looking at all those but the the fast folk on their bikes, yeah. you know, like the, the the people that were really setting fast times. A commonality that you would see is it almost looks like their legs are pre- pedaling down and backward rather than like in a traditional road position. If you think about it, you kind of set yeah. back a bit and your, your legs are in front of you. And in this case, it's almost like they're straight down below you and they're almost like pedaling yeah. down and backward. Yeah. And that was something Cheek that we, loops. yeah, we kind of consistently saw that across the fast people in in men's and women's racing, age groupers, pros alike, the fast people had that position. And I've heard a lot of people think it's just a forward saddle position. That's what you need. But the problem is I think a lot of people don't realize that when you move that thing forward, that has implications, not only in seat height, you need to have that seat higher when you move forward, but then also the bars had to move in the proper position because even the bars being in a different position, it really changed how, at least for me, it all, I'm sure it was for you. It really changed how my legs felt as I was pedaling. Yeah. uh,
1: Even like five millimeters up and down Mm -hmm. went from like, this is easy to, Ooh, this is really hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, how Dan described it was, what I'm, he said that um, what I'm doing is I'm putting you in like a rep, really recumbent bike position. Yeah,
0: half recumbent. He was Yeah. Call so it. if mm. you would
1: like take it and just turn it, you're kind of in a recumbent bike position, which is kind of weird to think about it. Because yeah. when you pedal a recumbent yeah, yeah, bike, you're almost like, That's a good visual. Like, you know, sitting up at like a 90 degree angle or maybe yeah. lean back a little bit. Sure. Mm. Um, so after that, he would measure where the X, Y, or the pads are. Mm-hmm. And then he'd go over to a computer. And slowtwitch.com, it has all the, the stack and reach. And then certain super bikes do have the exact position of where you can put your, um, like, like Cervelo. We looked at that for a while. Yep. And on their site, you don't have to do the measurement with like a certain stem or something. They say, here's where the pads are in space for this size. Mm-hmm. And we would just look through and he could say, here are all the bikes that fit you. Um, and then we went to other bikes that didn't have that and said, if you use this stem and this, this will, this is how you get the fit on this bike and this bike, mm-hmm. and then we looked at some bikes. They wouldn't fit you.
0: Yeah, uh, it was awesome. So like, I think a lot of time too, we get a bike fit after we get our bike. Makes sense. Yeah. And so for, yeah.
2: for some people it's a bit of a backwards process, but, but it's necessary.
0: Yeah. Now I'm, I, I think about this a little differently now mm-hmm. because we went without bikes and then we got the bike fit and now I know which bikes fit and for, for me, it's basically any any brand can yeah. i can fit
1: it's but, so annoying
0: but for you uh you since you are taller then it is tricky because i mean really it kind of comes down to Cervelo P5 P3 P2 that's kind of what it looks I like is going to fit you best we but. we
1: don't know what will f- we're not sure yet because my style height's so tall yeah. so high i forget what it was but it was really high 192 I guess, something like extremely that high. Basically a chin up,
0: basically a chin up bar height for the rest of us <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> but it, it was it was tall enough that uh I'm gonna be worrying about maxi pot ex, post extension yeah mm. and I'm gonna, right now with a Savello p5 I could have they have like a high V configuration which is a special mm-hmm. handlebar that raises up and then 15 millimeters of pedestals mm-hmm. so I'm gonna be way like way up there but so this is this is another this is another point because I'm sure people are screaming about this right now is so this could be the position where I put the most power, but now how does this relate to aerodynamics, right? Mm-hmm. And we're gonna go to the wind tunnel and at that wind tunnel, I would like to see, and I'll have enough training time at this position. If this is 350, well, if I drop down 10 millimeters.
0: Which you can do with headset spacers in yep. your case, right? Like yep. you can add a headset spacer and that can change your height. Mm-hmm. Or in this case, we could also, I assume in the wind tunnel, we'll be testing, narrowing our arms or
1: widening well, yeah, our arms. That's not for, for this point though, if I go down mm-hmm. lower, And let's say it it takes away 15 watts of power, but but we can do the math and say, but it 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 adds reduces 25 watts of drag. mm -hmm. Yes. So then I'm 10 watts ahead, and then maybe too I can adapt to that position. But Dan also had another key point. He's like, a lot of fitters they'll just put you in a position that is fast, like the like. They have they can tell they, there's certain angles and like this is the angle that you need to do to be a yeah. 40k time trialist without consideration for how long you're going to be in that position whether or not you have to run off the bike afterward. Well, no, they so they know that, but then they say like this is my first bike fit. The guy put me in a position and I could literally hold it for about seven seconds. And he goes, <laughs> "You'll get used to it. <laughs> Just come back three weeks from now." And Dan's point is, you never get used to it ever. Like yeah. you start with something that's comfortable. Because you'll always, I mean, how many years have you probably tweaked with your setup? Just a little bit here, a little bit there. To Constantly, get yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's like, no one will ever get used to it. So don't buy that BS from people who are like, ah, <laughs> yeah. you know, just don't worry. Unless they're going to let you come back for free, then maybe. But Yeah,
0: he's, you know, something that he mentioned was the fact that there's, there's, strength or accuracy and orthodoxy when you're talking about fitting people. And he said that, you know, you shouldn't look dramatically different than Jan Fredino or somebody like that. That's sure. an extreme, you know, you shouldn't be, yeah. you, your body is not an excuse to be totally different in a different position. Cause Nate, you are, you have, a, you're extremely tall compared to the average. You also have long legs uh, compared to the average. However, proportionately speaking in many, in, uh, you were actually not far off in terms of proportions for where you should be well, or for where that, that orthodoxy is. Right.
1: No, so. I, I, I think on that, I think I looked and I'll put a, you I'll, looked in the right spot. I'll put a picture on my uh, Strava, my next Strava ride. Yeah. Uh, of it. Nate, yeah. Nate Pearson. <laughs> Strava. <laughs> no, it's good. Hey, if you, for those who follow me, I'm doing some train road stuff on there. So you, you know, it's worthwhile. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. we'll tell everyone else what we're doing later. Yeah. But, um, so Dan had a really cool thing where he took a hundred like uh, amateur uh, triathletes mm-hmm. and he plotted their their stack or their where their handlebars were in relative to their uh, bottom, bottom bracket. He called it uh, pads Y, pad and XY. pad X Y, yeah, pad X and pad Y, and it would be this this linear relationship where you know the the more stack you have, the more reach you have, right, mm-hmm. for where your pads are within reason. Yep, the, and then he put pros on top of that. The pros had this very narrow band. Right, and then the the age groupers kind of got bigger, mm-hmm. and Jonathan was right where the pros were. Right, he was exactly in the middle, mm-hmm. and it felt good with him, even though it was his first time on a TT bike. Yeah, um, he looked pro. The picture he looked pro. Dan was like, "Man, you should do triathlons because yeah. he was it, it, he looks like a like even like a pro uh, road cyclist." Right, mm-hmm. Just and the then,
0: whole swimming thing's a little tough, you know. Yeah, so.
1: <laughs> and then me and then on me. that, he said too at the at the extremes of height. Um, I was way far off. I was at the very top of the height, yeah, and then but not not proportionally. My reach was not as far. I, I had actually a short reach, but a really high stack.
0: But that said, you were your position was not wacky. You it were looked not good. You looked yeah. like in terms of like, you, you, sure, it was you're taller, but your position is very similar to what you see with Gianfra or any yeah. of the top guys. Right. So it's, I think a lot of the time we look at it and there may be outliers and especially he was talking about the most difficult people to fit. A lot of the time are short leg, long torso, because just the bike world, it isn't really made for a lot of people with that makeup. So He said that that is where you get situations where there might be more outliers, but he said, in most cases, still, you're going to have kind of a similar position on a bike. You know, in terms of where your pads are in space, that'll be different. But in relation to that bottom bracket and and, and proportionately speaking, it's not that far
1: off. It's kind of interesting. Should we talk about UCI? Regulations?
0: Yeah. So uh, I guess that uh, we're not going to be talking about the aerodynamics or, or yeah, regulations that you need. Just position. Just position. So we'll we'll clarify that first. Uh, basically, there's a rule that you – there are two rules that are really like the main ones that, that govern it. It's how f- close you are to the bottom bracket. That's
1: the tip of your saddle. Mm-hmm. How, yeah. How close I can be for the bottom bracket. Yep.
0: And then there, the other one is how far your handlebars can be forward from the tip of that saddle as well.
1: No, from the bottom bracket.
0: From the bottom bracket. Yep. So, um, you, both of us are, well, we're right up against it, aren't
1: we? <laughs> yeah. So the, so when you do this, you have, you can take one exception. They call it a morphological exception. And anybody
0: and can take those. That's one thing that. The, we
1: were kind of confused on that.
0: So USAC Uh, can say no, I think, I think it's up to them to, to say no and say, you can't get this exemption, but it's not as if you have to have like an abnormal length arm or leg or
1: something else. Well, only one of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But you don't have to have that in order to get that ME, as they're commonly referred to a morphological exemption.
1: So So one of them is, um, if you, you can get an exemption where you can put your saddle, up to where your bottom bracket is. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of, you can keep pushing it forward. Mm -hmm. And in my position where it was good, I was one millimeter in front of five centimeters. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to have to go back one millimeter, but it's probably good. I could probably just push the padding in on my saddle and be fine. (laughs) The second one is, is how far your the tips of your um, arrow bars can be. And the standard is 75 centimeters.
0: From your bottom bracket.
1: Yep. Okay. And if you want a, a ME, a morphological exception, you can go to 80 centimeters. And so if you take that 80 centimeters, you can then not be, you have to be at least five centimeters behind your bottom bracket. Mm-hmm. Makes sense? Yep, you but, can't have both. You can only have one. But if you are over 190 centimeters tall, this is the one that it does take and count your body, your bars can go out to 85 centimeters from your bottom bracket. Mm-hmm. So with me, my bars at 85... I I still can't grab them all the way. Yeah. So, this is a little bit BS because um, in the tri world, it would be fine. I can do whatever I want. Yeah. But in the TT world, like I'm going to have to kind of grab with two fingers. That's how
2: at Nationals that particular year, I had to take my bars and bring them back, I think, three centimeters. So, they checked you the day prior. Yeah.
1: I was, I was. Beyond the acceptable hmm. measurement. And the thing to know about the bars too, we got in a position where it was like one millimeter each way. And we're like, oh, you know, I can adjust that at home mm-hmm. is that it includes your shifters. So if you have the TT, like the mechanical TT bar and shifters mm-hmm. go up and down. Quite long. Yep. Those are quite long. And most people though, they would just grab them there. Mm-hmm. But if you have a problem, if you have a, if you want to grab more bar, you could get ETAP. Mm-hmm. and they have the, the... Blips. Blips and clicks, right? Yep. So I think blips are at the end, right?
0: Yes, and clicks are on the side of those are Well, bars. clicks
1: can put anywhere, right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. yeah.
0: But they're usually used on the side. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. so you could put clicks, and that's what I'm going to do, on the inside so that it doesn't make the bar any longer. Yep. Yeah. Right. Because
0: you can't you can't afford millimeters even here. You've yeah. got to really be strict on on that length.
1: Well, yeah. We, there's a debate of. I mean, I want to be strict, mm-hmm. but for everyone else listening, are they going to check you? And uh, Dave Christensen, who was there, a, film, a videographer, made a good point. If you break a record, they're going to check your bike. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Maybe if you do a fifty-eight minute TT in Cat Five. They're maybe not do it if you're not far out, but right. it's good just to try to be in w- yeah. within it. Yeah, um, of course. And for us, we're going to be in it because it's got to be legal. Yes, has to. Another thing um, – Otherwise,
0: they can find this podcast and just pop us right there for it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, no, I mean, of course, I want to mm-hmm. be good. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's interesting in the triathlon world is a lot of people will, like, put their handlebars really high and mm-hmm. try to close that Turtle space. Up. Yeah. yeah. Um, for UCI, from the pads, your handlebars – so imagine like a horizontal line where your pads are. The tips of your bars can only be 10 centimeters higher than that. Uh-huh. Or I think it's 10 lower. You can go either way. Uh-huh. So you can only raise them up so high with 10 centimeters. And you can't angle them, can you? You can angle them, but only... Within reason. Yeah, no, it's the 10 centimeters thing. Uh-huh. So you can angle them up so that... Just so the tips of the bars end up... Yeah, uh-huh. 10 okay. centimeters high. Uh-huh. And then you'll see some people... I remember, I think, Dave Zabrinsky. Uh-huh. You'd see them holding with like a pinky... <laughs> on the top because they want to have that extra space of their hand to yeah. close that area that's the stuff where we're in the wind tunnel we can start playing with it where we can go let's go up let's go down yeah we're looking, gonna, lo- looking forward to that and i'm going to look for i want to try to go really high just for triathlon in the future uh-huh. because we're going to be there why not just try it you know angled up really high ones of course
0: yeah. yeah it was really interesting something so for people that don't ever ride TT bikes. This was, you know, my first riding in the in the aero position was on a fit bike like this and I learned a few things. Uh first of all, I felt like I was going to fall off the front of the bicycle. It feels weird, right? And I was told that that's just how, how it feels. Yeah. So and the thing is if you can get over that and the fit bike really helps with that because they can refine that position I was still was able to put out a good amount of power when I first got into that position I was not able to put out a lot of power felt like a lot of burn in my quads but then once I got into a proper position I was able to put out a
1: lot more and to his proper position again was up and forward yes. and then and then rotate down mm-hmm. so he kind of like would lower the front bars and bring them in mm-hmm. he'd, he'd do this whole thing he'd do four things at once he'd push he'd make Jonathan go up on a saddle. Mm-hmm. He'd make the seat be closer to the bottom bracket, and then he would lower the handlebars and then bring them in.
0: Uh-huh. He kept doing that because he's using that bottom bracket, like you said, Chad, as kind of the axis for everything, right? Mm-hmm. And something that I learned in going through that process is where you're supposed to sit on that saddle too. I know this seems silly for people that probably yeah. are, but people who are
1: not though, they need to know this.
0: Yeah, like uh, so, I was riding an Adamo saddle, I think the the ISMs, um, and uh, I was riding that saddle, and I was basically. So it's not like just just full soft tissue <clears> pressing on your saddle like your pelvis is there, but I was pressing on the on almost the tip of that saddle, yeah. right So it wasn't that uh, it wasn't like I was seated back into that saddle. I'm so used to like anchoring my sit bones, yeah. you know yeah. and it was nothing like that at all.
1: It's a very forward position. Yeah, that's actually Jonathan goes. I, I'm having problems anchoring my sit bones. I'm like, you don't anchor, anchor your sit bones on a TT bike. Yeah, um, yeah. When I first got up
0: there, I was like, what am I going to do? Um, but the the other thing that I realized with this too is that I'm going to need to do a lot of a lot more, and I really think that. So I hear a lot of people bagging on planks for cyclists and that sort of thing, but I really can see a benefit for a plank in a TT
2: position. I don't know who those people are, but they're out of their minds.
0: Yeah. Because if, if, when you're in that position on your elbows like that and your shoulders start to burn, that's basically what's going on when you're in a, you know, and it's, it's not that. So I guess what I'm getting at is shoulder burn. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily in the wrong position. It's just something that you have to You That's something that's normal. Like, you know, it's within reason.
1: Yeah. So. That one you do adapt a little bit, but Mm -hmm. we even – so we tried uh, changing our arms narrow and wide Mm -hmm. and found a a part where uh, we both experienced – Least amount of fatigue. Yeah, exactly. The least amount of fatigue Mm -hmm. um, on that. and Yeah. You do get used to that a little bit, correct? Uh,
0: but it doesn't. And mean, those
1: are muscles that have to be trained in that way. Ex- that's what
2: I'm getting at. Yeah. Is
0: that like it takes training? Like it's not like it's just going to be a natural no. position for you. It takes training in terms of you know the strength that you need to hold yourself. in That because you kn- you don't do that very much. Mm. You know
1: otherwise. Yeah. The um, going back to the TT saddles, uh, TT saddles will be different than road saddles because they'll be like really snub nose is the new trend, mm-hmm. and that also lets you kind of push the bike. Um, Push the saddle closer to that. Uh, uh, back five. in the day, we would actually cut off the nose of our saddles to be compliant. Yeah, there we As are. If you think about the old ones, I remember the old TT ones like ten years ago. It'd be this super super long nose, mm-hmm. and you'd have to ride on just the the end of it, and it was very 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 uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, our, so they. I tried a dash saddle, mm-hmm. which is don't even try them because they're too expensive. But <laughs> I can see expensive. They're five hundred bucks, okay. right? Yeah, I got a deal. This one's used for two hundred. So solid, solid, but the dash saddle, the first saddle I've ever been in the TC position where I didn't think about the saddle. Hmm. It's, like like it's, I wrote it and I was like, this is awesome. And then now thinking back at it, I didn't think about it. The whole thing. Yeah, I
2: find that with the Adamo.
1: Yeah. yeah. So they've good. got
0: a very wide channel. The dashes do very wide channel. And yeah. it's basically just like two parallel bars with, with, and it's carbon it's extremely light by the way, it's but nothing too. <laughs> it which doesn't really matter, I guess, in TTs in most cases, unless you're doing a climbing one, but, uh, but it's a pretty wide channel.
1: Yeah. And it's rigid too. It is very rigid, li- little padding, mm-hmm. s- super wide. And that is what fits me. So
0: yeah. Yeah. They're pretty cool looking saddles. Um, something else that, uh, I think that, people should think about too, with their, with their TT bikes, when we are talking about the shifters, if you do have mechanical shifters and you're worrying about that length, you can look at a situ- You can look at those shifters and actually shift the angle of them, whether it's ninety degrees or something else like that. And you can still that that way, their length going forward won't contribute quite as much. Yeah. Um, that was one way that we were talking about getting around mm-hmm. things if you absolutely need to.
1: That sounds not arrow, it sounds but a bit desperate. No, yeah,
0: It doesn't. But then again, if your hands are, are are over these things, who knows? It doesn't necessarily mean that it's not arrow.
1: So, yeah, you could bring the. It depends on how what your bend is, but you could bring the bars back and just grab the shifters. But if they're kind of bent, if they're the. Uh, Ski, bend. Ski bends, yeah, they go mm-hmm. up. I could see something yep. where you kind of move them back a little bit so that they don't. Uh, yeah, they're not so far out forward.
0: Yeah. Um, anything else that you want to cover from this?
1: Uh, we did road bike fits too. We did, and yeah, we, was, they were
0: they were rushed. We should say, well, not rushed. We had, rushed. To, we had they, to we had to head out. So we any big
1: revelations? Uh, one is that uh, Dan thinks that Jonathan was riding too aggressive on his tarmac. So we did, no, no, we too low backwards. So uh, not low enough.
0: Yeah. So we. I, I'm going to go back to what we said. Be about being rushed. It was just the fact that we had to catch a flight. We put uh, the the focus was the TT fits. These yeah. road fits were like we have some spare time in the morning. We'll, we'll jump on and we'll check it out. And uh, I I was in a position where we kept trying to refine the position and I was, I had my front end pretty low and it felt pretty good. How much of that was influenced by, by the TT fit that I was riding the night before or something else like that. I can't really say, and since I didn't have that point of reference, cause I haven't spent a whole lot of time on my road bike lately. It's been cross bikes and mountain bikes, right? So we basically saw that the fit that I had. Was way more aggressive than what I'm currently at with my tarmac. My tarmac is less aggressive than the fit that we were looking at on the fit bike. And Dan was saying I wouldn't put you in that position. So, oh, that's right. There's an interesting balance, and I think that this this shows any guy with a with a, a fit bike, even and and numbers and math, doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be a great fitter. And any, in this
1: case, any person.
0: Yeah, yeah, any person, I should say. Um, in this case, Dan looked at my. my feedback and he considered that feedback, but then he also looked at things and just knew, "Mm -mm, I know that's what you're feeling right now, but we should change things up. Right. So for the TT fit, I, it was completely unfamiliar. I had no point of reference, anything else. Um, but we spent more time going through that and on the road bike fit. I'm sure that if we would have had more time, we would have kept refining until we got to that spot. Um, so yeah, I, with me, it was kind of in, in one respect, it was almost a wash. But looking at the numbers, we started redoing some numbers and looking at conservatively where he would put me. And I actually have the same exact stem that he suggested on my bike. And it's nearly the same position. And what
1: happens yeah. to your saddle height? So
0: saddle height is the same.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So so the interesting thing about that too is uh, he's got some equations that like in general, this is the kind of like drop that you would have on a road bike. That's what you were saying. Like you're pretty low. mm -hmm. But the other interesting thing is Jonathan could actually size down a bike and put a larger stem if in that more, if I wanted to, yeah. In that aggressive position, he could have a, a smaller so, bike. And it's just interesting that you could go either way
0: and covering that really quick. I, a lot of bike shops that you'll go to, you'll talk to people and they may have some old school thoughts on bike fit. I'm, I'm almost always in between on 56 and 54, according to size charts for brands. And I always go for a 54. In most cases I do on a road bike chassis, that sort of a thing. And I've been told so many times that's foolish and I should be on a 56. But I really liked the fact that Dan was saying, no, 54 is where you should be. And you could even ride something smaller. I think a lot of people actually ride perhaps too large of a frame. They they might be able to size down and get a better handling bike as a result. Jonathan could ride a 52. Mm -hmm. And Um, I'm five, and I'm five, nearly 5'11". Yeah. So, and I have a pretty lengthy inseam, 32 inches. It's
1: just crazy. So I think um, takeaways, Mm -hmm. I would totally, if I'm going to get a bike fit, I'm going to do something with a with a with a fit bike. I mean, mm-hmm. Dan's one of the best in the world, so he is. <laughs> that's pretty nice to do that. And I don't think you can just hire him to to do I don't it. I think he does. This that. is special. Yeah. But Dan trains plenty of people. Fist
0: yeah. if they're fist certified.
1: Yep. So you can go to slowtwitch.com and he's got a, a list of um, fitters in areas. And I would personally, I really like the way that he did it. I would look for a fist uh, for t- for like a TT thing, a yeah. fist fitter who has a fit bike. Yes. And there's even he was talking about this guru fit bike. I saw it at dinner bike. It's even fancier. It's all electronic, Yeah. It's all electronic and it will tell you, we did this stuff looking up the bikes manually, but it will just tell you right away mm-hmm. as like you're in a position here, are all the bikes. So, and I, I honestly think it's worth a little bit of travel. Oh yeah. If you oh, have to go for sure. Especially to, if you're going to spend multiple thousands of dollars on a bike. Yep. Yeah. But then, the, and again, before you buy the bike, right? Because Ideally, then yeah. you can get, mm-hmm. um, yeah. You you know uh, of all the bikes that fit you, and you can get just get it set up exactly how you want. You're going to save so much time. The other takeaway is, um, my other bike fits like one of them took seven hours because <laughs> oh, all the things that were changing. Nice. Yeah, it took forever, and having cool. me go ride outside and stuff. And
0: you know? you'll lose and you'll lose like that point of like immediate A B testing exactly. ability. You yeah. lose it
1: when you'll you have lose to it wait right? for that long. So Dan's point is, and I think our TT fits took about this t- long you might, it might take two hours, 90 minutes, even an hour, but mm-hmm. because, because things get adjusted so quickly. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and it's also,
0: we're saying too, that, um, especially on the road bike side, Dan was changing the elevation of our, of our bikes and oh, changing yeah. the intensity to make sure that we weren't just like riding at an easy pace, you know, so
1: like the gradient. So he would, uh, after he got a, a, a flat road position, he put us up at like 6%, right. And then he had us get out of the saddle and he'd adjust the handlebars while we're out of the saddle, right? Mm-hmm. Who can do that? Yeah. And we're like, oh, that feels good. And then he'd go, he put it out farther. And he had the intensity was like a four hundred watts. He's mm-hmm. like, Does that feel better? Does this feel better? And we we got to a point where this feels the best for everything. And mm-hmm. it it was pretty cool stuff. It was cool. It was a lot of how does this feel? And then he then took that and put it against what he knows what a what a what a standard person mm-hmm. would be in. You know what I mean? So you gotta kind of combine those two. It feels really good. And you're within the kind of, we call it orthodoxy mm-hmm. conventional, w- what, where you should be and where the fastest people are. Mm-hmm. Those two meet, everyone's happy.
0: So we're going to be doing more content on this. You'll, you'll, you'll be able to, we're doing a video documentary series on the, our whole, I guess we're really chasing speed, right? That's what we're going after. Uh, well, <laughs> Nate's just jammed into beat us. Two of us are. Yeah. No, no. I, I mean,
1: I only really want to be fast because yeah. I want to. On this podcast, I want a good result because we've been focusing on – I was slow before, and now that I'm faster, we were doing mountain bike stuff, which I'm slow at. Outside of your wheelhouse. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, and oh, the other thing, uh, there's a possibility we're going to do a gravel triathlon, Chad, each of us racing each other, just so you know. Great. We're not going to say it's, I don't think it's announced to where this is going to be, so we can't yeah, we say can't it. We can't say but, anything. Um, just as just so you know, My short time swim, time. like a 500 meter swim, 5k run. When's this? Uh, so, sometime,
0: <laughs> sometime that's, this that's year. We'll, we'll let
1: you know. We can't, before.
0: yeah, we can't, we'll say it off air. We can't say the time okay. on air. Well, we we can
1: train for it, it after it a couple months after yeah. Leadville. Oh, good. You can start okay. training up.
0: Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, anyways, we're going to be doing a full documentary on this, and it's what, our aim with this is to extract as much actionable information, tips, details for you guys uh, and gals, of course, to, to then apply to become faster. That's the point. So to be a better time trialist. So stay tuned for all of that. It's going to be exciting stuff. Let's get into some questions. Uh, first one, <laughs> short and sweet. I like this. It says, hi, or this is from Daniel. He says, hi, this might be a silly question but should you taper
2: for a race if you're already only doing three to four hours a week? Yeah, way to be succinct, Daniel, like that. Um, <laughs> not really. No, it's a, that, that three to four hours a week isn't much of a training stimulus. So if you've gotten to a point where uh, that's sufficient and is making you faster. It's, 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 necessary to maintain most of that. When you taper, you lose a big percentage of fitness. The idea is that you're shedding fatigue at about the same rate that you're losing fitness and ideally shedding a little more fatigue than the, than the fitness cost. And, and with three to four hours a week, you're probably not carrying a lot of fatigue first off, and you probably don't have a lot of fitness to lose secondly. So, a, a, a taper is built into the low volume plans. But it's with the caveat within those week descriptions that say you might not need a taper. You might be able to train through this, carry the same training load into the weekend, and simply race in place of
1: your Saturday workout because of that. I think it's also going to matter your your age, your diet, always your those training factors. History. Yep. Yeah, and because you, if you're sixty five and three oh, to four hours yes. a week, for, you know that might real be yeah. A lot. So so if it's yeah. still a
2: sufficient training stimulus to make you faster, 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 maybe a. a, a bit of a taper and it's only going to be a bit of one will be beneficial, but in most cases, probably not. Yeah.
0: So I know so many people that, uh, are putting in three to four hours a week because they're riding outside and they, you know, they'll go for, you know, three, three rides a week or something like that. So they'll get up around this region mm-hmm. and then they've got a race coming up and they just like, no man, oh. chilling couch bound, you know, for a week. Cause I'm going to be fresh. And, and it's something that while you may be psychologically telling yourself that, and then psychologically perhaps feeling refreshed because you've, you told yourself that this is going to help mm-hmm. you can, you can just push right through that in many cases. Very like, yeah, yeah. I've seen that. Uh, and I've done it plenty of times too, where it's like, I'm not training enough to require this yet. So I'm just going to push through. Um, yeah, so let's say
2: you can dig yourself a hole on, on four hours a week of high intensity work. You absolutely yeah. can, but mm-hmm. you we're looking at what probably three workouts
1: a week, make that third one, your race. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. you already have a couple of days off. Mm-hmm. Um, to contrast that, I I, I did a, five, before this last FTP boot bump, I had a five week block where I was doing nine hours a week, all indoors. And then uh, my recovery week was four and a half or five hours or something like that week. So more than this whole week. Yeah. But that was enough to, mm-hmm. that, that, that was enough rest that at the end, it bumped me up. Yeah. You know like I mean?
0: a lot of but, it has to do with relativity. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's all relative. So if you're going three to four and then you do like, you don't want to do zero. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And three to four might be a lot for some folks. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, Alex says, hi all, I'm a runner and weightlifter who has been recovering from a broken foot the last few months and received the doctor's blessing to ride and stay in shape. I've got two questions. I've been having trouble getting answered elsewhere. I'm currently 199.6 pounds. It's very precise. (laughs) Not 200, (laughs) not 200. Stay underneath. (laughs) And he says, uh, six foot three inches. And I know this drags my power to weight ratio down dramatically. I spent years building up the muscle to get here, being a more typical endurance athlete, cross country runner, and don't want to drop back down to the high one sixties to one seventies where I was at the peak of my running. I also need some of, some of the extra muscle I'm carrying around and currently serve in the army reserves and the strength helps with lots of functional fitness requirements of military service. Thanks for that. By the way, he says, is there a happy medium to be found? Can I be competitive at amateur levels in cycling without being super skinny? That's a good question. Heck yes.
1: (laughs) I just met, uh, Stefan. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Stefan, Stefan, Stefan I always say Stefan. Okay. Yeah.
0: Stefan from cliff bar.
1: During our um, vigorous t- team building on Saturday <laughs> night uh, at the bar, I met Stefan. Yep. He is 6'3", 200 pounds, mm-hmm. with an FTP of 420. Yeah. He is very competitive. <laughs> yes. Right? So yeah. uh, he's pretty much the exact same size as you. Yeah. And he's mm-hmm. a big guy. Um, people, he did the drop right here, and on the, I mean, he can hang on the climbs, but he's He's not as fast as other people. Right. But on rollers or flat stuff, man, like he can... Short climbs, yeah. the hammer down, yeah. He can put the hammer down. Yeah. So, um... But he's
2: a he's a powerhouse. I mean, not not a lot of people are going to see a 400-watt threshold doesn't matter how big they are. Exactly. So you can still be quite fast on substantially less watts. I mean, you're basically describing my build. I'm I'm super close to that. I don't get quite that heavy. I'm not quite that tall, but very close. And Mm -hmm. I've been where he's been, the high 160s, low 170s, raced really well, been... High 180s, low 190s, race really well. So it's one factor is, and we've talked about this a number of times, is picking your courses. Mm -hmm. So you know, what courses would you
0: pick in this case?
2: um, Basically, what Nate just talked about: rolling road races, maybe uh, flatter road races, flat fast crits. If you're if you're a criterium racer. Uh, time trials, keep them, you know, the flatter the better, but that this is one of those instances where you would stop looking at your strength to weight ratio as much as perhaps your power to aerodynamics ratio. Mm-hmm. But in any case, just, you know, pick the races that suit you and look at the bigger picture, which in your case is that you're an army reservist. You're not just a bike racer. Mm-hmm. Um, you defiantly do not want to go back to that lightweight. So you're going to have to either build the power or accept that you're just not going to be as fast as you could be.
0: That may, I think picking how you race those are, Deciding how you race those or, going, or you are going to race those events beforehand is big, too. Mm. Oh, think, yeah, for sure. I think the, strategically, it changes the way that you end up racing. And I see a lot of big guys that are very clever in terms of how they race. They look at their advantage in the sense that they once they get their momentum going, it plays into their favor. Uh, they have big power. So if it's like yeah. winds coming in a section, they know that the little guys are just going to really struggle with
2: that. Yeah, you can
1: cripple riders, um, just, yeah. just, just ride away from them. Cross courses too. Yeah. I mean, if mm-hmm. you're if you're Mount good biking. at biking, if yeah. you're good at um, handling, what you don't want to do as a big guy is slow down in the corners and then accelerate. Yeah. that's going to kill you every time. Mm-hmm. But if it's a grass course where you're mainly trying to overcome uh, power to rolling resistance. Mm-hmm. Right, and and then you can hold speed in the turns. You can totally be competitive. Like, mm-hmm. I I think in general, as a fit person at six three and two hundred pounds, you can totally be competitive in the age group, and even you could even be a uh, a domestic pro. Yes. At that build, but you're right. Uh, With the s- power. Yeah, he he's got a. Uh, Stefan has a incredibly high VO2 max. I'm sure that's not normal. Right. And I would I wouldn't say the normal person to get to a 420 <laughs> <No>. FTP. <laughs> but I'm I'm just saying you can. Yeah. You can do it.
0: Be a be, be a very good bike handler too. If you're a larger rider. Yeah. I you feel can like play
1: that large physique
2: to your benefit quite yes, often.
0: Yes. Um, if you can, once again, momentum's your friend slowing down is bad, right? So if you really learn to carry momentum and have good line choice, like Chad, you're expert at that, um, in criteriums, you're very good at maintaining that momentum yeah. and if you do that, plus having a bigger build. And having, uh, hopefully, you know, a relatively higher FTP than the little guys. If that's the situation, then you can really just be a freight train and carry more momentum and it can be challenging. And remember that the weight, like, you know, body weight doesn't make you doesn't put you at a disadvantage in going through a corner. Mm -hmm. If anything, it actually is helpful because it pushes more weight into those tires. And if you
2: consider the dynamics of mass start racing and you're a bigger guy with just a little bit of an aggressive riding style, you can do what you want when you want. There aren't a lot of people Mm -hmm. who are going to try to shut you down or aren't going to let you into a line or aren't going to let you pull through.
1: (laughs) You're kind of in charge as a larger rider. Yeah. Alex sounds muscular. Yeah. Just kind of like, I picture like a 140-pound guy and then big Alex comes by <laughs> you yeah. let him in. Oh, I've, I've never thrown <laughs> an elbow on to. a big guy. Yeah. Never
0: have. Nope, don't that do it. probably uh, wouldn't a end well. Smaller rider, yeah. The, you know, I'll come in and I'll, I'll, I'll be comfortable making sure my elbow's a little wide when I move through that mm-hmm. gap. You Here's know?
1: a question for you two. Yeah. Say Alex is getting a new bike. He has a choice between a, a light bike or an aero bike. Same price, whatever range. I you go aero every time. Arrow. That's what I was going to say, too, arrow right? Because I think a lot of bigger people are like, I need that benefit on the climb. Yeah. Mm. But really, the extra – in general, arrow is usually going to make you faster. But the extra couple pounds, Do you're it. still not going to hang. Yes.
2: But – You still got to play to your strengths. Exactly. And, and losing two or three pounds on a bike isn't playing to your
1: strengths. That's what I think is like um, – it's making your strengths even better. yeah yes. Like, if he was very small, I would say – and a very, it had very, really high power to weight. I would say mm. get a light bike so you can make that breakaway on the yeah, climb. Sure. But if he's in a crit and he's going to make a breakaway, like get the aero bike. You want to be as aero as yeah. possible,
0: and also being a bigger rider. Let's say that you are, you know, you weigh 200 pounds. You have a good amount of power. You're putting through those pedals a good amount of torque. A lot of the times, those light climbing bikes too tend to be a little bit more flexy. Whimsy, yeah. Whereas yeah. the the aero bikes tend to be pretty rigid. So that's another uh, thing that's important to remember because I've seen. Big guys get up and sprint out of the saddle. That's a oh, lot yeah. of torque into that frame.
2: You
1: lay down so. big watts, you yeah. want a stiff, responsive bike. And yeah. you see, too, even like pro – so the, there's the Specialized Tarmac, which is like the, the climbing bike, and then the Venge Vias, which is the sprint – or not the sprint bike. Aero it's bike. aero bike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you see the top sprinters, too. They're – unless it's a – they're almost always using the Venge Vias, right, always, yeah. for the, the, the finish line and I think for the stiffness also.
0: yeah. Yeah, it's a, and I mean, there, there have been situations like Sagan using the tar- tarmac, I think, in World Champs and that sort of a thing.
1: But It's a hilly, though. That's a hilly yeah. course. Yeah, so and, he's trying to.
0: And also, that's a really darn arrow bike, as is, the tarmac. It's, you know, not far off, actually, the, from, their, yeah. from their Venge
1: bias. So. They say the tarmac is as, or no more arrow than the last Venge. Yeah, yeah. The mm. old Venge. Pretty so that's, impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that cool?
0: The second question from Alex, he says, I find that my available time per week for cycling falls somewhere between the low and mid volume plans. I can usually fit in four days a week, sometimes even five, any suggestions on when and what to add to weeks where I find myself with the extra time. Thanks for the excellent podcast training plans and app.
2: You can go a million directions with this one. So if you're getting basically what a, what constitutes a low-volume plan, a couple of days of intensity, and then maybe a longer day of still high but lower relative intensity, mm-hmm. um, you're you're covered. So what you do with those fourth and fifth days, you can, you can look at any of the mid-volume plans, and it kind of follows suit, is uh, – Maybe do an endurance ride uh, or, or a, a longer aerobic rec- rec- recovery-ish sort of ride with that extra day. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you can also target any number of things. So maybe – not in your case, but maybe you want to lose weight. So you go do a longer ride, maybe a depleted ride. Um, you Maybe you're a mountain biker. You want to work on skills. Uh, there's just – just figure out what needs the extra attention and address it. Um, I will say that it's probably not going to be, you're probably not going to fold any more intensity into that week. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the day on, day off structure alone basically says you can get three, maybe four days in each week. So it's probably not going to veer that direction. But what direction it does go, uh, there, there's a lot of them.
1: Mm-hmm. If you can take the more intensity too, rather than adding another intense workout, I like doing the plus. Versions of a workout, have the same, or yeah, on the so, same
2: day at the same.
1: Especially you're in low volume, so it could be an hour that day. But you could do the the plus one. It might be an hour and fifteen minutes. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. You kind of get an extra interval in. Here's why I like that too.
0: I always try to remind myself that I get faster when I'm recovering. Yeah. And if you do that, you could give yourself an extra day to recover. That's a
2: really important point. So if you want to up the intensity, I should should have mentioned this, you can just do it on the days where you're already doing your intensity. Don't add another day of intensity. And then for the
1: the easy days, what I've really – if you follow me on – Probably. It sounds like – I'm going to stop saying this, but there's reasons why I'm mentioning this that yeah, go yeah. with business rather than just like ego with, <laughs> yeah. with who cares about followers. Yeah. But I um, I really like Baxter. That's my – for me, Baxter is like mentally recovery. Go to aerobic ride. Yeah, and it's it's pretty much – it's just an aerobic ride with a whole bunch of changes, and I like having lots of changes. Keeps the you engaged. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I can fit that in. I do, I've done it so often now that I can fit that in after an intense day, and it really feels like – like easy, mm-hmm. it's 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. another way to add some volume where, yeah. and this is, again, this is a little individual, but I find that I can do an intense ride, Baxter, and then an intense ride. And that second intense ride is not hurt. If it was hurt, I wouldn't be doing Baxter, yeah. right? Yeah. Cause that, that's another one of your points, Chad, right? Is, if I was doing a two hour aerobic ride and then I couldn't do my next intense ride, yeah. that would be, I'd be better to do less or nothing on that.
2: Yeah. It just goes back to the simple philosophy of make the hard days hard, make the easy days easy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Great one. Phil says, hi team. I've been using trainer road for a while now and have recently commenced listening to the podcast, which nicely comp nicely complements my triathlon endeavors. Thanks heaps. I completed a mid-volume half-distance plan with significant improvements and participated in a 70.3 Ironman. Unfortunately, about 55 kilometers into my ride, I punctured my rear tubular tire. Oh, it's no. tubular. I stopped and attempted to fix the puncture with Espresso Doppio Inflate inflate and Repair Sealant, a type of pit stop tire sealant. That basically is like a, it's a charged canister that also has sealant within that. So you just plug that guy Can on work? and it throws it all in. yes, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, unfortunately the puncture was too deep and that's, I guess where I'm getting with that is that I haven't, I've seen them work, but only for small punctures and not for a long time. I recommenced riding with approximately 35 kilometers to go. And luckily I didn't damage my carbon rims. That is a benefit of two wheelers right there. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. so people who
1: don't know, uh, what Phil is saying is he rode on a flat tire. Yes. For 35 K. Yeah. 35 K. But you can do that on tubulars. Within like,
0: reason. Yeah. Within it's reason. Very easy. Not, not only to, to, to hurt your rim, but also it's very easy to crash.
1: And I've heard in triathlons pros actually said as a benefit, because if they, I've heard it, they're like three miles out, they get a flat. And on a clincher, you couldn't ride it back exactly. but on a tubular. They don't stop to change it. They just ride it. Yeah. But if you're 33 K out or 35 K <laughs> out, you have to ride it. 20 miles time. of and left to go. It's rough. He said, I was exhausted in the last 35
0: kilometers. Having to push significantly higher at my threshold pace with my run also impacted as a result, finishing in a 522 overall time. So what are the options for flat tires? Beside tire sealant with tubular tires. Is it possible to carry a spare and change the tire? So I, I think that for the average Joe, this is why tubulars are com- one of the reasons why tubulars are complex. Much less mounting them. Mounting them is an exercise in patience, <laughs> like, yeah. like really tricky. But when you look at Carrying a spare with you, a spare tubular, which I've seen done by plenty of triathletes yep,
1: all the time. Oh yeah.
0: It's a mess. And then also usually what you have is so tubulars have fabric and then the tire is sewn to that fabric. And there's a tube that's inserted inside of that little sandwich that you have there. Then it's glued on top of the rim. And it isn't like a normal deep channel rim. It's kind of just got a dished surface. And then you have to use this really sticky glue that glues that tire on. Uh, it Cross Nationals, actually, uh, I don't, know, I don't know if you guys saw that, but we saw, I saw three tubulars roll off rims in the, the off-camera
2: section. One of them was pivotal; it was for a, a win.
0: Yes, uh, last lap, and yep. it ran, it rolled yep. off the rim. So um, that that can be tricky if it's not glued properly. Uh, you can use really high-end glue, like I heard, for example, that Nino Schurter, when he was still running tubulars, which he's switched over to tubeless clinchers now, but I heard that they were using a glue. That was so locked on. It was so strong that it basically rendered after that race. And they would, new tires every race. They would just throw away the wheels <laughs> because it was so strong, but they did not want it to roll off. Do you recommend that for, no, okay. <laughs> <Ever>? <laughs> no. So, uh, for average Joe's, there's a problem of it rolling off. There's a problem of carrying around a big thing. And then you can't like glue the tire on the side of the road. So you use these sticker ones yeah. and they mm-hmm. don't stick on very well compared to a glued one. It's just a bit of a mess. Yeah.
1: Okay. Bill, you're living in the past. So I, I used like 10 years ago, I would see um, even pros, they'd carry like a spare tubular with that strip yep. that they could peel off and a canister, mm-hmm. right? And then, but th- it still takes a long time. Yeah. Now we have tubeless tires. Clin- you, tubeless clinchers, man. So if for triathlons, this is what I would do. Tubeless clinchers mm-hmm. with ceiling in them. And then I would carry the little uh, bacon strip. Yeah, what are those called? Strips of bacon. So it's
0: it's a tire plug kit. Yep. You can get it from uh, Dyna Plug. Makes a really nice one that's lightweight, small, and compact. Genuine Innovations makes another one.
1: So if you get a slice that's so big, which I recently got, where um, it, the sealant doesn't seal it, the sealant just keeps burning out. You jump off your bike real quick, and it usually it still comes out kind of slow. The air. Mm-hmm. You you stick the little plug in. You pull it out. As then sealed. I would then do maybe like I would either ride on that pressure or I would do part of a CO two. Mm-hmm. And you can do that by just uh as you put this the air in, you I would, you know, untwist it a little bit and then twist it back until it's You're kind of. You're like, talking
0: about your CO two nozzle. Yep. Or CO two on the nozzle, I should. Until say. it's
1: hard again. Um yeah. you could carry a hand pump too if you wanted, but that's kind of It's slow,
0: but the benefit of the hand pump is it. So when you use, so, so clinchers, we should cover or tubeless clinchers, tubeless setup. It uses a different sealant than what you see with that espresso Doppio deal. It doesn't use, that's almost like a tire. Like when you get the tire foam that you put in, if you get a Mm. flat, like emergency stuff. Okay. Whereas sealant is latex sealant and this stuff seals extremely well. However, if you flash it with a bunch of CO2 and it's freezing cold in there after you use that, it can degrade the quality of the sealant and make it tougher to seal. So that's the benefit of using something like a hand pump in the sense that you could use that, but a yeah. so cartridge will get you out in a pinch.
1: On my on my normal rides, I'm carrying that little small hand pump, mm-hmm. right? And that'll mm-hmm. work. But in a race, I would use a CO2. And then after the race, I would just put new sealant in. And right? I, can't,
0: I can't remember the name of the brand, but there is a brand now that has a CO2 cartridge that is also a tire plug deal. So you plug it in, and then when you pull, start pulling it out, then it lets the air out of the CO two in the same exact spot, and then leaves the plug in there. It's what? Brilliant. <laughs> so yeah, it's really good.
1: Okay, um, that sounds cool.
0: So, so that's 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 a great option to have. And once you have your tire plugged. I mean, I've seen people ride gnarly enduro trails with a tire plug in their tire for like a whole season and it's fine. But if you're riding road, I highly recommend throwing that tire away thereafter because you'll have a little bump in that surface and you don't want that in terms of handling.
1: So So for rolling resistance on a triathlon, fill, like right, like the top, I think, I want to say the top clinchers are faster than the top tubulars, yeah. based on like people's reports with roll down tests and like drums and stuff. Yeah, you're just dealing with less layers bumping against each other, and one of the big problems
0: is the deep channel that you had with like clincher tires with with tubes before, but now uh, it's with tubeless. It's not as not as complex. So.
1: so Phil's writing a more complex system that's slower. So sell them probably more expensive. And yes, that's yeah. probably for certain. Yeah. So yeah. I would sell those carbon. Wheels and get carbon clinchers, yep, or aluminum clinchers, either one. Yeah, like going to tr- sell them to somebody who doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> there's that's plenty of people do. though. There's like a, um, it's like almost like a, a romance around oh, tubulars, yeah. right? Oh, totally Absolutely. Totally. Where it's like I am a true bike racer because I have tubulars. It's heritage, it's old tradition. school, traditional, yeah. romantic. The, yeah. The
0: the cool thing is with sealant. So I have I have tested this uh, when I first went to tubeless tires on my mountain bike. I had an old tire and my my brother was convincing me of this. So I had an old tire. We mounted that up first and he had a board with nails and he just rolled my bike right over the board with nails. Six nails in and into my tire and it sealed up. Mm-hmm. So this stuff isn't just like small goat head holes or like little pin pin holes. It's it's they can sealant can seal amazingly large stuff. When it's a tear a cut. That's usually when a plug really helps. I hope that was an old tire. Cause that's expensive. It was an old tire. Yes. <laughs> your
1: brother's like, no, I'll prove it. Like that's a hundred dollar tire. Yeah, no.
0: no, it helps. So, uh, Ian's question. He says, Hey guys, love the podcast. Can't tell how much I've learned from it in the short, or can't tell you how much I've learned from it in the short time since I discovered it. That little word makes a big difference. There. <laughs> <laughs> says thanks for all the hard work on the platform and being so generous with your collective knowledge. I have a race coming up in January in Southern Utah, and I'm wondering how body temperature can affect performance specifically. Whether to wear full leg warmers, just knees or bare legs, depending on the temperature that day, what is your recommendation for how much to cover up possibly sacrificing aerodynamics and freedom of movement? Thanks. Keep up the good work. If I could jump in really quick on the freedom of movement part, Mm -hmm. a good set of warmers will not. Yeah. Impact you. no. Yeah. So I, I find that like riding tights a lot of the time may inhibit movement, but not necessarily some brands make some really good ones. But I, I have like, a, I have, I've mentioned this countless times. You guys give me problems for it,
2: but Merino
0: wool warmers, super warm. They mm-hmm. don't get clammy and
2: zero inhibition. Yeah. When in doubt, just wear knee warmers or full leg warmers, but yep. the, the the knees especially are of concern. There's just not a whole lot of blood flow there. So they get cold, the, the connective tissue, the ligamentous system gets uh, more susceptible to injury. It's just not worth it when you can put on a pair of knee warmers. It's not going to restrict movement. It's certainly not going to lead to overheating. I mean, you can wear them on the hottest days. It's probably not going to be an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but anytime you're just a little bit reluctant
1: or uh, you just can't, can't quite decide, just err on the side of caution, wear them. Yeah. I like this question because he's not talking about we talked before, like heat adaption. It's just, am I comfortable with the performance? But I'm with you, Chad. Like, it's rather to be warm than to be freezing yeah, cold. Yeah, it's not nice so you can't
2: strip them off later. If you are too mm-hmm. warm or you just recognize that they're, I don't know, mm-hmm. distracting. Uh,
1: knee warmers or leg warmers?
0: I think that – so I think that the problem that I've found with leg warmers is that in a lot of cases, people's calves are shaped so differently, and there's usually a zipper going up the lower portion of a leg warmer. And that – doesn't allow quite as much freedom of movement down there. So I've seen some people I'm thinking of a guy that that races on a local team. And he's Austrian and he's just a strong dude and he his calves are massive. And it's it's much harder to fit in to, to normal leg warmers. So if you have a fit issue, knee warmers. Otherwise, though, if there's not a fit problem, you might as well just cover
2: up. I would just let temperature dictate. If it were a very cold day, I'd bundle up everything I could. So leg warmers would be the way to go. But any other day, I mean as low as geez, probably forty degrees Celsius, I'd mm-hmm. I'd still
1: be
0: 40 degrees Fahrenheit. De Fahrenheit. <laughs> <laughs> <So those years. laughs> Child lives um. on the sun. <laughs>
1: <laughs> See, I've noticed that, so I have skinny calves and leg warmers will like flap and not be tight. Okay. So, um, arrow, arrow calves, arrow calves. Saying, <laughs> thank, thank you, John. <laughs> right. Um, I've found, I bought the swift wick. They make a wool sock yeah and they go up so high Mm. that with my knee warmers i can really have no exposed yeah that's the other thing tall socks and knee warmers you basically have leg warmers exactly and then on a on a cooler day i could go shorter socks but i pretty pretty much covers my whole leg or i could make it fashionable where i have just a little slip of skin sunburn yeah yes exactly (laughs) it's a real good look
0: another tan line to add to the list (laughs) because you don't have enough as is
1: what about embrocation cream
0: yeah i'm a big embro fan um, well, describe what that is because I've
1: only recently heard about it.
0: Yeah. So it's it's a cream that you apply that's usually oil-based in the sense – and then what it does is it provides like a barrier on your skin. It's kind of like an oily layer on your skin that helps with making water just bead right off instead of you know getting soaked. And then also it almost always has some type of a capsaicin mixed into that. So there's a warming effect to it it does feel very warm. Uh, that said, it doesn't necessarily make you warmer or improve blood flow. It doesn't. So that's something to keep in mind.
1: Uh, it's sensation.
0: However, it's, it's fully, yeah, it's sensational. So, and I know a lot of people say that the capsaicin makes your blood rush to that. I, I, I I, no. So, no. And what I think that I like embrocation for a lot of reasons, number one, makes you look really tan in most cases. It's very, very true. Very important. That's That's a win. Yep. Uh, but then number two, and, and really the main reason why I like it is because I can put on Embrocation and if things get you can get stuff that's really hot. Don't get that. Like I think there's uh Mad Alchemy is a brand that you can get a bunch of different ones. They have like uh, anything medium or low is what I would go for. You anything?
1: start low. Yeah. And then you can you can build up a tolerance and you could go higher if, if you, you need to. Yeah.
0: But the thing the cool part is is you'll put Embro on and especially if it's like cold morning, not too bad during the day, just kind of chilly during the day. Yeah. <laughs> it's really effective earlier on and then Even if it gets really hot, I haven't had problems with using low heat Embro or mid heat Embro. Hmm. When you use the high stuff, it can get pretty hot if you're, if it's warm outside. And then the worst part is if you go into the hot shower afterward, it can literally feel like your legs are on fire. So use low stuff,
1: start with low. I really like it though. Um, the situations that I like it are, you'll say you start and the sun it's, you know, it's light out, but the sun isn't up. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of cold, but Mm -hmm. the embrocation cream will wear off. Yeah. So you, you know, you kind of use it and then you don't have to carry around the warmers anymore. Yep. But I'm, and then the other one is like on two Fridays ago, our first ride of the, of the week for our training camp, pouring rain. Mm -hmm. Right. So I didn't want to have leg warmers on that were just going to soak up and maybe get floppy or something. Yeah. So I was like, I'll put the Emperor cream on and that was fine. Um, and the third one is a muddy race, like a a cross race or mountain bike race where all this mud could potentially stick to my leg warmers and then cause like, you know, issues where it's going to flop around and stuff.
0: Or add weight. If it's really muddy, that stuff can pile up and mud sticks to mud. Yeah. So if you have a little bit of mud on that fabric and then it keeps adding up, it it is weight.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, Mm -hmm. and too wet. You get your leg warmers really wet. Yeah. They're like, they can hold a lot of water and all those situations, like if it's not too cold. Right. <laughs> um, the Embo cream is probably a, it's a cool thing. Yeah. Yeah, so I like it. to put it on, put your bibs on first. Yes. <laughs> put your bibs on because you don't want Embo cream getting where Embo sensitive bits yes. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pull well. your shorts up high. Yes. And then put it on.
0: And then but wash your wash hands, your hands
1: right? thoroughly with yep. dish soap usually. And then don't touch anything. just like hot chili peppers. <laughs> don't wipe your eyes. Like, it Sounds so yeah, complex. You're not building a real strong case for this stuff. I'm, <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah.
1: Actually, I have some mild stuff and it is, it's not strong enough for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't feel the heat. So I'll let you try it, Chad. I, I'm okay. Okay. Thanks. I'm, I'm an
0: Ember fan. So I'll give it to you. I don't put Awesome. I don't put it. I don't put specific degrees to when I turn things on or off basically like, okay, now it's knee warmers, arm warmers because humidity has so much to do with it. And mm. the pace at what I'm riding has to do with it. Honestly, the best thing that I can say is that, and I don't know, Southern Utah, it doesn't have a whole lot of road races. Maybe this is, it does have a lot of mountain bike races. So maybe this is the case, but a lot of the time I look at the weather and I think I could ride on the road with warmers or I can ride my mountain bike and it's slow and I don't need warmers. I'm all about that. So, uh, mountain biking, if, if you, if it is cold, maybe you can just ride slower. You know, ride a discipline that still has you riding at what you need to do, but slower,
1: anything to get people to mountain bike. Jonathan's like
0: (laughs) all for it. It makes for good humans. So, uh, last one is from, and then for those that are with us on Facebook live, uh, type those questions in and we'll get to them right after this. Uh, Ewan says, Hey guys, can you explain a little more about pedaling technique? I've come into trainer road after a year or so of unstructured, but enthusiastic mashing up Hills for training. I've that was like me too when I first started. Uh I've been following the drills, but find it hard to visualize a kick and pull. And he says that in quotes, as it feels so different to the piston like movements of before. And when he's talking about a piston, he's talking about mash down, mash down, mash down. <clears throat> I can certainly get it to the point where it feels more efficient on the trainer, but is everything below the knee supposed to feel so, and he says in quotes again, floppy, (laughs) any kind of additional tangible tips would be appreciated. Thanks guys.
2: You and that, that floppiness is exactly what we're trying to correct here. So we're not looking to drive more power out of different aspects of the pedal stroke so much as make it more fluid, Mm -hmm. looking for economy of movement. So we don't want a lumbering pedal stroke where it's a lot of power than nothing, a lot of power than nothing where if you were to plot it or, or look at it visually, it would be very evident where all the power is coming from. We just want to, I mean, that's still going to happen. The quads are still going to drive the pedal stroke. There's nothing that's going to change that. You're not going to build a stronger pedal stroke by building your hip, hip flexors and emphasizing them. That's, that's not what we're after here. We're just simply looking to get you to move more fluidly and to be less wasteful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these drills help you do that. So with the kick and pull, we're just trying to emphasize what are typically the dead spots rather than just let the, the momentum of one leg carry the other leg we're actually being just a little more active, mm-hmm.
1: again, with the aim of being
2: slightly more fluid.
1: We had a discussion with Dan Enfield. This is going to bring everything around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a, a pretty long discussion about toes down or heels flat. Mm-hmm. Like, what's better? Mm. And basically, Dan said, I don't know. There are pro Grand Tour winners that do both. Mm-hmm. It was pretty much kind of how we say for cadence, too. There's no perfect cadence. Yeah. Pedal how you pedal. and uh I, I do drills both ways. Mm-hmm. One thing I noticed too, during the bike fit is I know that my seat wasn't high enough when I, cause I'm a toe pointer, right? So by having a, t- a, t- a pointed toe, I, that actually is going to make my seat higher than normal. I knew my seat wasn't high enough cause it would get hard and I would drop my heel to mm-hmm. try to make the seat mm. higher. You okay. know what I mean? Yeah. I get what you mean there. Yeah. As yeah. I was going. So that's a I'm just – that's kind of a side note. Sure. but it, yeah. I don't.
2: It's, it's kind of an impossible question to answer because you you, you see pe- riders who ride a particular way and you say, well, it works for them and they're world class. Well, could it work better for them if they did it slightly differently? We'll never know. So we can only really speculate. Um, I, I, I am a firm advocate in that a more fluid pedal stroke is a less wasteful pedal stroke and that in and of itself is reason yeah. to practice
1: these drills. I think we can say you can win a world tour with pointed toes or you can win a world tour with flat yeah, We but can probably, say that, yeah. yeah,
0: absolutely. I look at a pedal stroke like Tom Bonin's and I always – he he was – he it was beautiful when he would pedal, yeah, right? right. Um, it was perfectly smooth. And then you look at somebody like, like Froome and it looks totally different and he makes it work. It makes it work. Uh, but I think that we can all gain some level of efficiency there with that. The biggest difference you might see since you're relatively newer to riding Ewan, is that you will have less discomfort on your saddle. I found when I first started, I was just mashing. Right. And then that made me move quite a lot on my, yeah. And then it just made me complete. Oh, it was just super uncomfortably raw. So, uh, when I would learn to be more smooth with my pedal stroke, I wasn't shifting my pelvis around on that saddle as much. And it made me way more comfortable. I suddenly went from thinking that these are terrible bib shorts to (laughs) no, they're okay. I just, I just wasn't doing it right. You know? Mm -hmm. So that, that's kind of a side benefit too. I've also found that in situations, if you ride off-road or if you're riding wet and it's steep, the same thing, you have to maintain traction. Yeah. If you are a person that has a more fluid pedal stroke, it's much easier to maintain traction and you'll get less tired in that scenario mm-hmm. because – Interestingly, I found that when the road tips up and it gets, you know, loose or anything like that, everybody suddenly has to become a more fluid peddler or else you get off and walk because you've lost traction and you've stopped. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, if you're completely unfamiliar with that, because you've just relied on just like, you know, jamming your legs down the whole time, then you're going to get really fatigued and you'll have to walk. Whereas if you're a person that trains that, if you come across those sort of scenarios, or if you ever do, which you will at some point, uh, then you'll be prepared for it. So that's another, I guess, side benefit to it. Cool. All right, guys. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for and guys and gals. Forgive me. Thanks for submitting these questions to us. You can do so at train slash podcast, and we will come through them and answer them again next week. And we appreciate everybody joining us for those that are here at Facebook live, stay tuned, stay with us. Thanks, everybody. Thanks everybody. <laughs> Bye-bye.